This episode of the Zealous Podcast is sponsored by Perform Better. Perform Better is the leader in functional training by supplying innovative products and top-notch education to trainers, coaches, and therapists. Check out the brand new Perform Better app designed for professionals who want to stay on top of their game. This free app features education from the world's best. You'll learn from industry leaders including Mike Boyle, Gray Cook, Sue Falzoni, Charlie Weincroft, and many more. Topics range from strength and conditioning, program design, nutrition, business, and marketing. Just go to performbetter.com. Welcome back to another episode of the Zealous Podcast. I'm Rocky Snyder, and with me this week is a legendary strength coach, and I mean that. I mean, he was he was training the pros back in the late 70s, early 80s. In fact, he was the strength coach for the San Francisco 49ers as they made their bid up to the 1982 Super Bowl championship. Also, not that, just that, but uh, Chicago White Sox, Chicago Bulls. He's he's holding a couple of different championship rings, one on each hand for all the work he's done in the pros. And just like soldiers, they they never die. This guy doesn't even fade away. He's been going strong. So Al Vermeil, coach. Hey, welcome to the Zealous Podcast. Thank you for having me. You know, I, I guess I would love to start out with somewhat of an origin story about how you came to be a strength coach and getting up into the pros. And then I also want to talk about the differences between training in the 80s to training today with uh, a whole bunch of technology and everything else. But first, how, what, how, what got you inspired to start coaching? Well, coaching was always in my blood. My dad had actually coached the Calistoga high school football team in the thirties until they found out he wasn't a teacher <laughs> and he was a player. And, and my brother, I would go out and watch my brothers Stan and Dick practice every day and go to all their games. And even before that, I would go to all the games with my sister because her boyfriend was a quarterback. So sports was just an integrated important part of our family and especially football. So, and when I went to high school, after my freshman year at five, five, 130 pounds, you know, if you want to play college football, you're going to have to get bigger. So my brother's ex high school football coach, Bill Wood, who coached at Calistoga in 53 and 54, and only lost one game in those two years. He came up and gave me my first weight program. He later became, cause you're in Santa Cruz. He later became the head football coach of Santa Cruz many years later. He gave me my first weight program. I lifted through high school. I ended up throwing the shot fairly decent, not good enough for California, 54, nine, even 63 didn't get you to the state meet. <laughs> but then I went to junior college and played for Dick at, at, at Napa junior college, played at Utah state lifted. And I got a coaching job at Castle Robley high school and the head coach there, Gary Collinborn said, well, you lifted weights, you run the off season program. So I started running off season program. And after one year at Kansas State as a graduate assistant under Vince Gibson uh, and their emphasis on certain things in their offseason, I went back for three more years at Castle Robley. Then I was six years a head coach at Moreau High School and I ran the offseason program and, you know, all that. Don Chu yeah. was at Cal State Hayward, my best friend. So we started doing plows about 1976. Um and we were running down a slight hill, very slight. And when I make that statement, I want people to understand more is not better. We never speeded them up for whatever the distance was 40 yards, more than 5%. So 
if you ran a uh, five flat 40 on the flat, we never speeded them up more than about 4.85 or, you know, point, you know, it was very, it was not a lot, but just enough. We also ran uphill and then we did the Olympic lifts and all that. And, and then uh, we were successful there. We had a great group of kids that worked really hard. In fact, we, I was telling you earlier, we would go to Santa Cruz and our last two years there, we'd have our four days down at the university there. And that was great for us. And I was very fortunate uh, through my brother. I knew uh, Coach Walsh and he hired me at the 49ers. And I spent four years there with him. And we were fortunate again to win the Super Bowl. I, I started my own business and, and, and I, I saw how they were timing things at that time. They were using mechanical advices. So I had a, the original timing device made by a former student at Moreau. And Don and I had worked on that. And then we had the jump mat. We were doing what they now call the reactive strength index back in the 1980s, but we didn't give it a name. We knew it was important to have a high height and a short contact time, <laughs> but we did. We just didn't give it a name. And uh, so then um, I we'd work started to work with the White Sox, and they invited me to spring practice. I spent forty days with them. Mister Reinsdorf and uh, Roland Heeman called me in and asked me, "Would you like to go to Chicago and work with the Bulls and White Sox?" Because Mister Reinsdorf just bought the Bulls in '85. So I went home and then went back to Chicago and negotiated a contract. And that's, that's the way it all ended up. And uh, so that's what I, what I, how I, I ended up in Chicago and was fortunate to be there in the, in the great run of the championships. Now, how was it just transitioning from the NFL over to the NBA or for that matter, major league baseball, when it came to designing programs for the athletes? Well, I always tell people this, the biggest transition is going from high school where the, you're the ultimate dictator. I was at a Catholic school and you, now you're just, you know, you're strength coaching and not everybody had strength coaches in those days in the NFL, but here's what coaches get caught. What I see them coaches get caught up and I'm did the same, all the specificity. The only difference is the uniform they wear, the ball, they either shoot, catch or hit and the surface they play on and the length and width of that surface. And, it, and, you know, so I always felt I came from the generation where we had just switched where college football played one way. See, when my brother Dick played quarterbacks played both ways, everybody played, both had to play defense. And I still think I've got an, a, a belief that you do a disservice to kids in high school, not, they don't have to play in a game, but if they don't play defense, you don't learn how to react as well. And I think as you're an offensive player, having that ability to play defense gives sense your height because you know when you're going to get hit and you have to brace. But anyway, so uh, I always believe the ability to move fast and explosively. I, I have always said, train slow, you'll be slow. Well, it's and interesting had, because that's a great, that's that's a great point because when i look at the fastest athletes on a football field and you watch what their 40s are it's it's not the wide receivers it's not the running backs it's the corners they're the ones that are having to start off running back and reacting do you think that's why well i i can't i won't make that i just think from an injury prevention standpoint 
And if you played, I played in high school. <laughs> By the time I was a junior, I was the fastest kid in the school, but I was still playing defense, a nose tackle and defensive tackle at 160 pounds. And my senior year, I had a great, I had always had great coaches in high school. They were all really fine gentlemen, uh, not egotistical, you know, it was, and my senior, I got a great coach named Marsh Cruder. He made me back, put me at linebacker. And I was, you know, so playing close to the line of scrimmage really sharpens your reactions. So I'm saying if you've got a high school kid, he may be an offensive player, but having him play some defense in practice for all the kids, it sharpens your reactions. So I just, and you, and you learn when you're on defense, you, you know, the people trying to block it, you've got to brace yourself and, you know, and things like that. So I just always thought that was important, but when I came back from Kansas state, especially that coach Gibson and his staff all came out of the South. So they were into a lot of the movement agility things. And so I always believe you've got to move fast. Well, what, what causes you to move fast? I, I, I see people today. Well, we got to get to reactive strength. Well, there's a progression. What kind of conditioning are you? What work capacity they have? What's their strength level? What's your explosive strength levels with heavier loads like Olympic lifting versus medicine ball? What's their one standing long jump versus five? Because what you do when you do a strength training and one jump and one throw is acyclical. It's one motion, then you recover. There's, well, sports is a cyclical secular event it's repetitive so you take what you gain in acicular and you convert it by doing all the jumping and sprinting mm -hmm. and we in all my programs you know we always did a little sprinting so in a, you know i just think when you look at it the basketball court was short so there's no sense running 40s because they never ran probably more than 10 to 12 yards all out and that was rare you know, most of it is, is you're on defense. You have to make one quick move cut, you know, and there was in that time in the NBA, there was a lot more pushing and shoving, you know, the, the game today, they've taken a lot of the physicality out of it. And, and, and of course, being an old guy, I kind of liked it when they had a little more physical and it wasn't run down and throw up the three. I, sure. I just, but so, but if you look at baseball, you got to run 90 feet, that's 30 yards football, you know, so whatever makes person move fast from point A to point B, it doesn't matter the uniform ball or court or surface. Sure. So whatever training techniques work there. Now, there are some differences. Now, obviously in baseball, you got to be a little more con concerned about the shoulder. So you got to be, you know, be aware of, of the shoulder. Uh, and, you know, I, I wouldn't, you know, I, we bet, I let the guys, some of the guys bench at the Bulls, but I always believed that the push press and military press were much more important than the bench press. And when I was a high school football coach, my last year, we didn't even bench. And here's my reasoning. You don't lay down in football. If you're on your back in football was never a great position. Exactly. Uh, now I did now people, I know I've had old guys that knew me say, well, you say that, but you, you bench. I said, yes, because I didn't know any better. <laughs> but when I first started lifting weights, the military press was still in the Olympic games. So you measured a, a man's strength by what you could press. 
And with these short little arms, I was really pretty good at it. <laughs> it wasn't great for throwing the discus. So I think you have to look at that. And I think people get so hung up in things today and they get they they try to break it down to such a finite thing i think they miss the big picture uh i had someone call me yesterday and said what do you think about the bosco test for how to design a program and carmelo was a personal friend of mine okay well carmelo's test one of them was you had the squat jump where you would you you have to pause four seconds no counter movement and then you take that height and then you take the counter movement jump or a regular vertical jump with your hands on and look at the difference. And then there were other tests. Car Carmelo also, which never talked about much, he would have you do 10 repeat jumps, just regular verticals, and then with your hands on your hip, then he would do 10, what he called the stiffness, that there was a very short contact. So the emphasis was quick contact time, minimal, minimal flex of legs. And he would look at the difference of those two. And if you were, if you were so much better with leg flex on the repeat versus the lower leg, then he felt you needed for power to train your lower leg because that was a deficiency or vice versa. Uh -huh. So, but the point I asked, he said, well, they're not very reactive. And I said, what is, but what is their strength? how much leg strength they have. If you read Satorsky's book, The Principles of Training, which is one of the very best textbooks ever, ever written is Satorsky's. And he, he'll tell you right there in the book. And Mike Stone and everybody else has done a bunch of studies. He took volleyball players and he said they improved their vertical jump with a squat until they could double their body weight. Then there was no, the squatting didn't have the effect. And I'm not saying everybody's got to double your body weight. But if you have a normal size athlete over a period of time, now I'm not taking a high school freshman and trying to do that. You, you, you got to let the progression go at the rate of the maturation. It's got to be gradual, but you know, the gold was, you know, you, you try to get to people that females about 185% of the body weight. Now, do you get everybody to do that? No. But so what, but I'm saying, you've got to have a great strength base and, you know, and then you can, I like clean pulls or snatch pulls. Some people like deadlift and people say, why do you like the pull? First of all, we did the Olympic movements and it's more athletic. It's more speed and then the deadlift, but you know, some people use the trap bar and, uh, and a side note. Okay. All you old guys out there that are in the seventies, like I am, I'm 76. I started to have some knee problems where I couldn't squat anymore. And what I did is took the trap bar and I took a program, the late Carl Miller. Now, most people listen to this won't even know who he was. He was United States weightlifting coach in 1980 when we didn't go. And a brilliant guy. I brought him into Moreau when I was coaching. And he had a, a squat program that basically you started up and you supported the weight was real heavy. Then you'd go down four inches, you know, four to six inches and the weight would lighten it all the way to the bottom he called it descending so i took the trap bar and put it up real high and did some reps with very short motion then i went down four inches did a couple sets there and i got all the way to the floor and i turned the upside down because i'm short and then i took and stood on a one inch block well after doing that for three to four weeks i'm back squatting again 
Now, I'm not squatting what I did, but I can do it. And I did that, and it was amazing. And, and it's real simple, guys. If you want to try this, it's also a good way to teach kids to squat because it keeps you upright and you keep your weight back. So you just basically start up high and work down four to six inches. Now, for taller athletes, you're not going to have to turn the thing up down. <laughs> but I wanted to get my thighs down to where I was squatting. The other thing I did, and I'm sure, I, first of all, I'm not saying I'm originated any of this. I, 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 you know, I've got a slide on my uh, programs I, uh, when I talk. Shows guys doing all this stuff in the 1800s. Uh -huh. 1800s. So the other thing I did is I took off the cable, I took the old pigtails. And to show you how old I, is, I am, I was at the gym. Sometimes I work at home, but I was at the gym there and I pull it. I said, oh, hand me the pigtails. And the guy looked at me, what do you mean pigtails? I said, that's what we used to call them. I don't know where it came from. And I'll put that on the bottom of the pulley and I'll squat with them here. So I'll lift it up and it keeps you upright. And it, if you have a little back problem, it takes the stress. So anyway, yeah, that's so I, I wanted to tell people you adapt. And it's like at the Bulls when we looked at strength or even the Niners, I took what they could do and didn't spend six months on what they couldn't do. Mm -hmm. You know, so you adapt. Now you've got the safety squat bar. You've got the Buffalo bar, but you have to get their strength levels up. Well, you know, yeah. you, you brought up so many things just now that I, I well, first, like taking bench press and, and putting it off to the side, using it maybe as an elective, but not as your core fundamental movements instead of a push press it would, would be so much better because of ground reaction force and, and vertical loading and all that. And how about core stability? Oh, yeah. Everybody talks about it. They get down and do the plank. Not the wrong. I'm not, not when I'm taught, I'm not, it's an elementary yeah, if you're a sniper, I would rather have a guy be able to push press his body weight than do four minutes of plank. There you go. Because you're engaging all this. And uh, now you, the plank is a good way to train young kids to get them ready. I'm not disagreeing with that. Yeah, I think we've run a little bit too long with the plank, oh. though. To well, we're, into re we're not training people anymore. We're in constant rehab. Oh, he doesn't move this way. Not everybody looks alike. Not everybody moves like Charlie Francis was the one that really used to emphasize that. That's so that that leads me into something else. Uh, first, though, before I get to that point, you were mentioning sprinting. And I got to say, when it comes to the fundamentals of athletic development and, and achieving better performance, I personally think that that is top of the charts there if you can't walk and you can't run and you can't sprint then how you can't play <laughs> you they used to say and vince would say if you can't run you can't play because in when everybody had to play both ways you couldn't have a 320 pound guy that could only run 10 yards they had to cover kicks had to cover punts had to cover kickoffs you know so it was a you talk about and I'm not disparaging, but I want to make that because people say, oh, you're an old codger, you know. No, <laughs> I'm just saying when you played both ways, you had a better overall athlete, yeah. overall rounded. I'm not, these guys are better athletes today, no question. But if you ever looked at, and I want to get your question, but if you can go online and look up Billy Cannon's Midnight, midnight Halloween Run, where he beats Mississippi with a punt return, I believe, or a great run from that. If you look later in the tape, Mississippi's on their 
LSU three yard line. Okay. Guess who makes the tackle on fourth down to keep Billy Cannon? No kidding. They play. So I come from that. When I went to high school, you had free substitution, but we might only have, we went to one game. We had 15 guys. A couple were hurt in, in L. So we all played both ways. And I played both ways in junior college. So, you know, that conditioning base, but anyway, go ahead with your question. Well, the, the thing is, is that, um, you know, we, we advance with technology and techniques and all this stuff over the course of the last 30, 40 years. But I, I sense that we're not able to see the forest through the trees, that we're so specified and, and looking at too much of a magnifying glass that we just don't come back to the fundamentals. I mean, the human form has not changed any well, that's since the 1800s, right? Well said, well said. It are the parts that the great, I think the greatest athlete to ever live relative to his time are one of them was Jim Thorpe. And if anybody out there doubts me, there's some great books. I'll give you a couple quick stories. Number one, when he was a young man, he was about four years old or five. His dad took him in the middle of the river, left him there and said, swim to shore. <laughs> At 10 years old, he was going out on overnight hunts. He was a great football player, played baseball, unbelievable track and field athlete. And I think his 1912 marks, I, I forget, I think in the, I can't remember whether it's 36 or 48 Olympics still would have scored up very high and in a primitive training. But the point being, he had heart, lungs, muscle tissue, soft tissue, tendons, ligament, bone. Man hasn't changed in the last 200 years significantly. Now, if you go back a thousand, a couple thousand. So why didn't the methods that work so successful? Now, what we do know through research is exactly how they work better. And if I had a young kid coaching for him, I'm going to say something that's going to upset all the technology people. I wouldn't let them use technology. I'll tell you why. You first got to develop your eyes and ears. If you're relying all the time, now I developed a timing device where I could test how high they jump, how fast they jump, multiple times, change direction forward, backwards, uh, sprint, I mean, all of it. But my point being is I learned to coach first. I didn't, I had to figure it out. And if you, you should be able to look how your athletes are moving and give you a kind of a clue what you're going to do. So, for example, if you're warming up doing the running drills and you're going to do sprinting and you see those times bad or you see their movement stiff and slow, it's not a time to sprint. When you get it, once you get to be able to sprint pretty well, if you're not running 95% of your best, you're not sprinting. Mm -hmm. You're not getting anything out. And the back to your point about speed. I, I've, I've done a coaching clinic and for Titleist performance. And someone asked me, Greg Rose asked me, what would you do if you had one, one form of training? I said, sprint. People thought I'd say, I said, because first of all, I talk about that's what the game is. You get, a, it's the ultimate form of the last, the reactive strength, the co contact time and sprinting shorter than anything you can do jumping. You can overload it with an uphill, a sled, and one thing we did that you don't see people do, and I got it from reading about the Russians, we would put about a five to 7%. It was a foam white weighted, not a weightlifting belt, a weighted belt around. 
And what it does, it overloaded the reactive part of the sprint just enough and improved the react and had really good results. Now, someone will take and go 25 mil, that's power. And, and, you, and you can push, pull a sled. Uh, so you can do all those things. If I had a second choice would be strength training. Uh, now I divide that into strength and explosive strength. And some would say, why not plyometrics? Because I can get that out of sprinting. Yes. Now it's important. Don't, don't take that out of context, but speed is the ultimate weapon. If, if, if you, you look at the good football teams that get there, the, the basketball, even the bulls, we had good speed relative to basketball and at the key positions you need it. And I think Michael Jordan did demonstrate. Now I didn't train Michael. I don't want to ever say I did. I don't do that. But if you watched Horace and Scotty and even John Paxson, who was a great guy, worked really hard, all those guys, you know, Tony could run well, you know, and running is a coordinated path. People say, oh, that's easy. Oh, oh, you no. try to get you try to get good at running really fast. It's not that easy. It is no. not at all. And you want to talk about joint mechanics, every single joint motion that every bone is capable of is done in that gait cycle. So you, you want to talk about core training, explosiveness, reaction. And when it comes simply down to it in any sport, pretty much, whoever gets to the ball first usually wins. Whether yep. it's a, a puck, a ball, a basketball, football, whoever gets to that ball has a better chance. The of guy that gets there first, I always said in football, get there first, but, but, but arrive in a bad mood. <laughs> I love it. Okay, so here's what I, I want to pose this kind of uh, hypothesis, I guess, to you. We grew up, and I'll, I'll throw myself in as one of those old codgers. I'm, I'm on the, you know, the baby boom border right there. So we grew up climbing trees and playing in the swamps and running down the railroad tracks and throwing rocks at bottles and uh, just getting outside, right? Until you, you heard somebody yell dinner time. And unfortunately, today, that's not happening. Now, now we could consider that just... Um, just functional play. We could consider it farmhouse strength, whatever you want to call it. We set our bodies up to be much more adept at all sorts of movement and force production. And today, with every following year, with every year that follows, we are seeing less and less purposeful physical movement at, at childhood and on through the years. So even though these athletes and their skills and abilities are amazing today compared to maybe years gone by. No question about it. Their structural integrity, it seems, is more compromised. And therefore, would you imagine that the higher incident rate of injuries, non-contact, by the way, has something to do with that? Uh, yes. Let me answer one part of that. Part of the thing is the faster you are, the greater the stress you put on the system. And you're playing on that turf. Okay. And I don't care what anybody says. They ought to plow it up, tear down the indoor stadiums and play football out where it was meant to be played. It wasn't meant to be played in a purist. That, that, because you will look at New York this year. They went back to that new turf and they had a bunch of injuries. Yeah. The, here's the problem. And I'll go back to your other. If you practice on grass all the time, there's a certain time your body learns to decelerate. Now you go to a part where you decelerate faster and you've only done it once a week. Yeah. 
bad things. And it's, it, it's no different than if you've ever watched racing. My dad's in the Sprint Car Hall of Fame, and you have the racetrack named him up in Calistoga. And my brother Stan and him ran race cars, and my brother drove. You ever watch a dirt race versus a race on the asphalt where the tires have great traction? It's the difference. When you stop suddenly like that, it you watch the cuts these guys make. And I think it's an accumulative effect on the joint. It may not, but I watch guys make cuts. I, they have them on, you know, someone will put up a receiver and I've seen guys make cuts. I couldn't, unbelievable, unbelievable cuts. Well, in, gra in grass, you couldn't make them. So you have less stress on the joint. Uh, there's no question. Back to your original, you're absolutely right. When I was a kid, we had an olive tree in the back and we would play because I'm a lot older, we would play like we were bombardier pilots and fighter pilots because we'd watch all those those World War II movies when they weren't old coming right up. So you, you would say, we got hit and bail out. Well, I went back and looked at the tree I was jumping out of. It was probably, I was at least jumping from about four feet down and landing. Well, that's a training effect. And there's a, and I would run in plowed fields, creek beds. We had the Napa rivers. So we'd go down and we were running down on the rocks. And you remember how you tried to balance the railroad tracks? And we had a little hill we had to run down, decelerate, run up. Uh, and we would jump. In those times, we had swings at school. We would take our swings and try to go up as high as we could, and then bail out. And we would have a contest. Well, every time you landed, what were you doing? On the monkey bars, we used to twist to get all up, climbing trees. So all those things are, let's say, from four to 12, uh, whatever years old. Those are, there's periods of opportunity where you develop certain physical traits and strengths. And if you don't get that at that age, you miss it. You, you can't make it up the same academically or intellectually. Uh, we also hit underneath buildings. So you were crawling, bending. You, you, twisting. Uh, we used to play a game called leapfrog, which is a form of, of simple plyometrics. Uh, we'd play kick the can, hide and go see. You know, we we're always running, doing something. But today, you do you ever see kids go out and take a baseball? Hey, okay, let's, hey, five guys, let's go out and play baseball. No, this hit fly balls. We used to play a game called workups where you didn't have enough people. So you'd have three guys up or two, depending, and so you hit the ball and you're out, you'd go to right field. And then the guy that was catcher would take your place and you'd rotate. And the only way you'd break the train, if you were the right fielder and caught the ball on the fly, you could go up or you could give it to the game. But I ask kids about workups, they look at me like I'm from outer space. <laughs> and we play football. We played football. We tackled. We didn't even have helmets on. But we play. But kids, you're right. They, they're highly skilled. But if you look, I just saw where Tom House said some of the three fastest pitchers he's got or seen all didn't all didn't specialize early. Uh -huh. People that specialize early tend to have more injuries because they've done one sport. Think about it. Why are golfers getting hurt today? They play one sport. Jack Nicklaus played. You keep swinging that golf club that hard in one direction. It's like a pitcher. It's got a hundred mile an hour fastball. You know, I just. I just think you can't replace basic play as kids. I, I just kind of, the analogy I use these days when it comes to conditioning the 
the youth and the young athletes that are coming in that for the last 30 years have been playing video games and have personal computers and so on. It's like trying to put a race car engine into a Yugo, you know, you're you're trying to, to develop so much power, but the chassis unfortunately is weak. So how, how would you say like, what what's I know I don't know if you have the solution obviously but what's one Probably of don't. one of the potential solutions just obviously getting kids to play again but what would you say to the the coaches that are are coaching the youth sports right now? I would say you got to do more fundamental things and more work capacity and and do things. I tell you what, there was a guy Harlan Savari who has passed away. He played for the New York Giants many many years ago, back in the fifties. And I, I actually watched him play and he had a thing out and I can't think of the name, the patch it was called where the kids ran on railroad tracks. They got on all kinds of things and it was all just different kinds of movement. And if you look it up, uh, I think Rick Ugly, who was a strength coach at Washington for many years, got involved in it. But I think, you just got to do a lot of medicine ball throws, different movements, you know, just, just different things. And I, I, you know, I, I don't, I don't know how you replace it. I know, I think I know how to fix it. You go back and put physical and physical education. Yeah. But what I do is say, okay, we're going to have a place. We used to play 10 inch. It was like a, a smaller softball because you couldn't use a hardball. Okay, that's cool. But even if you play softball, okay, here's a bat and ball. Here's the rules. Here's the workup. You go play. That's be let them figure it out. You know, you play basketball. You, you know, you play the do different things. But uh, they don't even have swings anymore. They, I asked my grandson, do you ever bring a bat and ball or football to school when he was in elementary to play? Oh, they won't let us do that. I'm going, huh? And they, and they have, they got as he got older, he only had like. And then he didn't have any recess. They sat all day. Well, what do we know about sitting in relationship to what it does to the body? Worst thing you can do. Yep. So they sit all day. They go home and play on their computers. Like my granddaughters play on their school volleyball teams. Now they've been playing volleyball since December uh, on a private, you know, they all go, you know, so they play, you know, instead of getting to play basketball. Right. It's all single sport. Yeah. It's too much single, single sport. But I don't think you're ever going to be able to recreate the generation we grew up in uh, because we're not as rural a community anymore. I would think would be a great study for someone to do is to study kids who were raised in a rural community and do rural activities, especially farm kids, what their athletic injury rate through their career versus kids who are born in the city or suburbs, suburbs especially. Now, people say you can't coach mental toughness. I'd, I'd have to think about it long, but I think you can cr- get kids t- to learn to reach down deeper within them and do something they didn't think they could do. And that's what the purpose of our four days. You think about putting that uniform on four times a day, getting up at 530 in the morning and, you know, and getting it done, you know, and it's, you have to demand something to these kids. And that's what I'm saying. And a modern coach can't demand anything. When I, when they, they, I was very honored. They rebuilt uh, a brand new football field and soccer field uh, at Merle high school. They redid it all and they named it after me. And I was sitting next to the standing next to the principal 
And he said, it's too bad guys like you can't coach anymore. Ah. Because we had a drill called three on three. I picked up from Vince. You had three defensive linemen, three offensive linemen, a blocker and a safety. You had a 10 yard long and about seven yards wide. And you had four downs to make 10 yards. And when the whistle blew, we were grabbing, could you get up in there? He made a yard on you. But our kids understood. And one thing every coach had ever played against said, boy, you guys came to play. We not may not win. And those kids years later reflect to me how all those things made a difference in their life. But you can't get people to raise. And I don't know if mental toughness is the right word. I don't think you can get people to raise to their whatever their potential is by not asking them. If mm-hmm. you don't get them fatigued. Now, I don't mean crazy stuff like some of the things where people go out and they do things and the kids are going to the hospital. That, that, that kind of stuff is no place. But getting kids, and what you do is build it gradually so you don't have problems, but getting kids to do more than they thought they were capable of, because most of us never use our whole potential. Mm-hmm. And I think that goes along with what you're saying about kids in general. But we don't treat them as kids anymore. It's, it's, it's too structured. I always thought little league is put the bat and ball out for the first six games, let them figure it out themselves. Hmm. Now. So, okay. So I love, I'm sure I went on the rant. You might want to edit all that out. No, no, that's great. I, I want to talk more about coaching, like in your opinion, for your experience over the years, what makes a great coach and what are the signs that you're over-coaching? I've done that one too many times. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the worst. I think the sign of a coach is the ability to use whatever knowledge he has and communicate it to the athlete so the athlete understands and can perform it. And the most important quality is trust. And I, I had a personal experience. I won't tell you. I had someone from... The Chicago Bulls called me this weekend. And he said, one thing is I could always trust you. Mm. Not just as the coach, but as be able to come and talk to you. And I've always told young strength coaches, if you're doing a good job, those players, a lot of times will come and talk to you about other things other than just the sport. And I said, you need to learn to talk to them and treat them as people instead of you're the right tackle, you're the power forward, or you're the center fielder, or you're the great sprinter, or you're the setter in volleyball, whatever it is. They're people. Treat them like people. That's the best piece of advice. And if all you do is treat them, you know, and I, I mean, you have to be genuine about it, but you have to care about, if you don't care about people and they don't trust you, you have no chance. My brother Dick gives a whole talk. And he said, the first thing in all the places he had to go, you have to get the players to trust you. Mm-hmm. They have to trust you. And so I think that's what's really important for coaches to get. And sometimes we get all caught up in the other things. Now, overcoaching is watching the athlete continually do it wrong and getting frustrated. So you have to find a way, the fewest words that paints the biggest picture. You know, I, I've, I've been guilty of, of giving a dissertation and the people, they're rolling their eyes. So the fewest words, uh, an example would be in Olympic lifting, a lot of guys want to get on the toe, uh, you know, they can't get what they call a hip hinge. We call a hang. Yep. I used to tell them, 
your butt goes back, your shoulders go forward, and your body weight goes towards your heels. Well, if, you're, if your butt goes back, your shoulders go forward, and your body weight goes to heel with a slight knee, you got, you're in the hand. Or we used to get guys, I had a kid in from Italy. I had a contract with Benetton basketball for a year, which was great. Was oh. great group. And I had a young man named David Bonaro. And he was going on his toes too soon on the, on the pole. So I had him jump backwards on a 12-inch box about four to five times. Now I said, just pull it. He didn't, he didn't go on his toes. Because when you really pull the bar correctly, there's a, and you, if you watch the Olympic lifters, when they're warm, they're, they're, they'll move slightly back. You know, so it was, I didn't have to say anything. So for young coaches, try to find a way that they takes care of the deficiency without you saying anything. And that's, you know, or a very small pitcher. And sometimes, you know, wait till they get done with the exercise. And, you know, and sometimes you'll work with guys and they never quite get it. The next year they come back and do it automatically. And I never got it. And my, I had two golf, I have many golf friends, but one is Chuck Cook, the great golf teacher out of Texas, Tom Kite, you know, and uh, Payne Stewart, Jason Duffner, Corey Pavin, and Dick Drager. There's a book called the German Rock, it's a German rock climbing book. And in there, they use a word as a reminiscence, reminiscence. And I've never quite understood it, but sometimes you can do something a year before, not quite so good. But when you come back, you kind of recall it and you can do it correctly. And I've seen it over and I never knew what the phenomenon was, but so just try to paint a picture, be concise. And I haven't been very concise answering your questions. So the people listen, it's easy. Old codger wants you get to the point, but that's what you have to do. Look at each drill. Uh, I'll give you another example. We were rehabbing a young lady who had a, had an ACL and she was doing the running drills with a limp. I said to Jeff Macy, put the five pound weighted, not weight belt, weighted belt on her, have him do it. She did him fine. Take it off. She did him fine. I learned from Mark Comerford, the great physical therapist from Australia. If you want to find out if it's inhibition or strength, add a little weight. If they do it better, it was inhibition. If they do it worse, it's a, it's a strength issue. Yeah. She did a bit better. The other thing, she was having a hard time squatting. And we had the old barbecue squat that you can't find them anymore. I, B, uh, BSN out of Texas used to sell them. It was like a big, looked like a barbecue. That's what we call it. You stood on and put the belt, but it had the, the peg was up higher. You, you could hook it and you'd walk. So I had to do, you know, a couple sets of that, then go squat. Or, or another example is, Let's say you have someone that can't overhead squat or can't. I would take a medicine ball, put it on their back against a wall, have them squat up and down. Now they could do it perfect because mm -hmm. their feet are away from. And I said, now here's the key that people don't do. Now get in the bottom of that and press it. You know, so people ask me, you know, they'll get a, get a coaching conference. Well, what's the most important test? And they're all gone. You know, I'll say, what's it? What do you think is the most important test when you're going to do with an athlete? Someone will raise his hand, give me an answer, give me an answer. And I never put people down. Never be as a speaker, demean your audience. I've seen guys do it. I've seen people do it. I saw a famous football coach do it. I won't give you his name, but I thought it was very poor. And they asked me, I said, can they play? And they go, 
Well, if they can't play, they don't have the skill of the game. Nothing you do is going to change. Well, I'll get them stronger. I said, if they don't have the movement pattern, they won't put their hat. Well, you can't say that anymore. They won't put their hat in there and stick them. And they won't, you know, they don't, or they don't have a, they can't shoot the basketball. They can't change direction. Nothing you're going to do is that. I said, that's like taking some with 100 IQ and say, we're going to make you a physicist. That probably <laughs> won't happen. So the most important, and they said, well, what's it? I said, well, if they can play, all right, now let's see how far you can take them. What's their speed? Well, if they have really good speed, you know, they're elastic, you know, they're reactive, you know, they got good movement, you know, they can jump high because there's a strong correlation. And then people say, well, about to change direction. Yes, we've got to change the direction test. And we took, did that to compare it to their straight ahead speed, see if they were efficient. But if they could play, I knew that. I said, the overhead squat with the press. I said, have them take a stick, overhead squat it. Now when they're in the bottom, can they keep that position? Mm -hmm. If they can keep it, you don't need to test any more mobility or flex. That's it. It does everything. Well, what do you, well, it gets all your lower body. It gets your thoracic spine. It gets your lats. It gets your shoulders because you can sit there and press it. It's very simple. And then you can do a series. Then you, we, you do the jump test to see which qualities maybe are so forth. But again, can they play? Yes. They run fast, overhead squat. Now, if they can't play, you know, now you might get some guys that can play, but they'll, their speed won't be as good. So that'll tell you something. Sure. So, I think you can break it down a lot easier than the, I see people do things. And I said, man, that's a lot of work. You know, <laughs> to come to, and, and when, when are you going to train? That's the other thing I see. But when are you going to train? You know, they have all these tests and all that. 95% of the problems are usually solved through a good training program. Mm -hmm. and, and everybody's talking about asymmetries. In certain sports, asymmetries may be an advantage especially one dimensionals, one motion it could be, I'm not saying they are, everybody's got asymmetries. So are you going to, if, unless it's really, you're going to spend three months correcting one thing and letting everything else go. If they have specific problems, work on them, but don't not, don't stop doing all the other things they need to do to be ready to play. Sure. Oh, I love it. I love it. I, there's so many things that ring true for me and, and the programs that I designed too. And it, it goes along with that. Do they have the skills? Do they have the speed? Do they have the coordination? And then yeah. can we, can we build upon the, the strength? And the other most important thing, do they have this? Do they have heart? Do they want it? Because if they don't want it, I, I, we had a couple of kids come in and tank the test for the Chicago Bulls and we worked them out. I want one was a really high profile guy. Two or more actually tanked it because they didn't want to play for us. Uh -huh. But so I, I just think it, it's like people say, well, periodization. Oh, you know, what model do you use? What? I said, first of all, all the study models are all with just weight training. I've never seen one that includes all the different things. I said, what quality does this person lack or is deficient and it's going to make the biggest change in their his or her performance and what is the progression that you must go through before you can train that quality 
So if you lack speed, you just can't. Yeah, you, you, you always have a little speed in your workout. Well, they're not very strong or they're not very explosive. Well, there's a progression. You just can't start there. So now people ask me what we did with the bulls. I said, we lifted. What else did you do? We lifted. I said, what else did you do? We lifted. Because that's the one thing they had never done. And obviously, they're in the NBA. They were all starters. They, were, they could play. I said, and they've done all the other. They've done eight-month plyometric season for their whole life. So yeah. doing a ton of jumping in the offseason. So we did squats of some kind. It may be front. It may be belt. It may be uh, the old safety squat. Uh, we did clean or snatch pulls or both. We did power cleans, power snatches, push, press, push, jerk, and jerks, depending on the athlete. We didn't all do it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I let the guys bench and horse would, you know, some guys would do some curls up, but I meant that from the strength phase. And then we'd go out and do Charlie Francis's tempo. I'd take him out to the forest preserve. And because it wasn't a hundred meter field, we'd run for 20 seconds and I'd walk for 40 and, you know, we'd do a couple thousand yards that way with a 150 walk between sets, 50 between runs and finish with a five minute run. People say, where'd you do aerobic conditioning? I said, the court isn't a mile long. <laughs> we got, we got, and we do the met, we did a lot of medicine ball. And then eventually we would in the gym, we throw the medicine ball 20 times off the wall and then stride down the length and then throw another 20 and we do a set of 10 that way, rest and work up to four sets of 10. And then we did Vince Gibson's old football circuit I got from Vince. And uh, we just modified it a little bit for basketball. Other words, we'd get in the, in the key and we'd run over here and back. You couldn't turn a circle. I'd started doing this as high school coach. You had foot had to hit the line uh -huh. or over. And we do that for 15 to 30 seconds. And then, and the next guy would come in and then we had, we'd backpedal to the free shot line, turn your right foot out, plant, go back the other word, left foot. And then we'd shuffle and throw the medicine ball underneath the line to keep them down. And then we'd do backboard touches. We did, uh, we'd actually crab the key. And people said, why would you have them get down and crab? I said, what do guys do in basketball when they get tired? Reach. They don't move their feet. And then we'd run a suicide and then a 90-second run. It was a tough worker. We'd do that twice as the season got before the season. Wow. So, but the point is we did the things we didn't get fancy. Now, people could say you had a great team. Was going Yes, they were going to win the championship whether I was there or not. I'm not taking that credit because people always want to give me these in, in, introductions. I said, yeah, but I was the same guy when we didn't win the world championship until we got, and then when all those good players left, we didn't win, I was there. I, I said, if I worked for the New Jersey or Brooklyn Nets or whatever they're called now and the Detroit Lions, no one would have known who I am because those, <laughs> that's what gave me credibility. But what I owe the most to is my high school players because that's where I developed the program and their hard work and their commitment to effort at Moreau and Castle Roby High School is what really helped me develop the thing. And if those kids wouldn't have been a cooperative and put in the effort, uh, things would have been a lot different. And that's why people ask me which championships mean the most, the Super Bowl or the NBA. I, they were great. I enjoyed them. I'd be lying to you. I've got seven rings. But I said the high school championships I won because those kids did it 
There was no other reason than the part of wanting to be a team and part of wanting to accomplish something. There was no money, no big reward other than accomplishing a goal. And not that the Bulls and 49ers didn't have the same thing. They were great guys. Don't misinterpret that. But I was really meant to be a high school coach. I was never meant to be a professional coach. And I think I probably carried that same personality to the Bulls and, I, and 49ers. And I think it was probably refreshing to the guys that I was, I probably reminded them a lot of their old high school coaches. I just was not meant to be that. I just, it, it, it happened. It was never a goal or never objective. My whole goal was to be a great high school football coach. Well, I think you achieved that. And then some uh, coach Vermeil, this, this has been phenomenal. I, I had this feeling that you and you and I could talk for, for like three more well, hours without it getting tired. You know, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an old windbag. My wife was here. She said, don't you ever shut up? And I hope, <laughs> I hope for the listeners, you apologize when I got off a couple of times, but you get old, your mind drifts a little bit at 76 and, you know, and you were talking about sprinting and I'll give this advice to young strength coaches or young adults continue to lift a couple of days. How much always do always leave another rep or another set. Well, I won't get, do you want to train at 60 and 70 or quit at 50? Cause you can't always leave another rep or set. You're better to under train than over train. The other thing is sprint twice a week, do the running drills. Now, if you're older and you get, or if you haven't sprinted first, do the running drills. And then nice gradual acceleration where you accelerate easy. You can run uphill, start easy, do somewhere between 150 to 180 yards a couple times a week, because that will keep you young. You, you, you lose your glutes. If you don't squat, you don't jump and you don't sprint. So if you can find a way to squat somehow, whatever works for you, and you can find a way to sprint somehow, you know, and the uh, uh, one thing we didn't talk about is single leg training, oh, yeah. which is very in vogue. The one I like, I love the single leg RDL. I think that's an excellent exercise. I like what we call, I've got a great clip of uh, Ryan Reynolds, one of the strength coaches for the Chiefs. Dragomir showed me that, Dragomir Serosian. We used to bring people in. My, I spent more money on, on consultants than I ever did equipment. Equipment is only as good as the guy using it and who's instructing it. But you get on a and you get on a box and you you eccentrically go down slow. And at first you won't. Ryan got it so he could get on a box and go all the way down and his foot not hit and come back up. Now that's a long progression. So I like that. And I like the old one Mike Boyle used to do on the box with the dumbbells. That's oh, the yeah. hardest one. That's the hardest one. But those three. I think are my favorite unilateral type exercises that I like, you know? So anyway, Fantastic. once again, thank you for having me. And I uh, hope I didn't, I'm apologize for rambling so much. Not at all. It's been a pleasure. And that's a wrap for another episode of the zealous podcast. I certainly hope you enjoyed this time with coach Vermeil. I know I did. And I look forward to the next time our paths cross. Be sure to tune in next week when we have another spectacular guest that is one of the pros behind the pros. And be sure to subscribe. Tell your friends if you're enjoying this. Don't keep it a secret. Let's share the love.
I'll see you next week.